our surety has been raised from the dead. We celebrate that every Lord's Day, 52 out of the year. But as I was thinking about Easter as a particular 24-hour period, I think it's helpful for us to remind ourselves that there was a day in history where a dead man, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified on the Friday before, laid in the grave Friday afternoon after three, all through Saturday, and was raised historically, bodily, corporally, the same body that went into the ground, came out of the ground on that particular day, that first Easter morning, right? That the God-man has been raised from the dead. It's not something we feel good about, right? It's not just some emotional thing that we deal with. No, it's a historical reality. And I think Easter helps us in that sense, even as a Reformed minister, to think that there was a particular day when Jesus of Nazareth bodily, physically rose from the dead for his people. Because you're no longer in your sins. The sin, sin payment has been paid. Your sins are back there in the tomb. There are no more. You've come out with Christ. You now stand justified in him, totally forgiven, washed and cleansed. Now your heart, you're sitting there going, well, I don't feel that way. Well, God is greater than your heart. It's about him. The gospel's about him and what he has done. Praise his holy name. Well, let's look further into this great gospel that is about him. Uh, as it's been my custom over the past few years to look particularly at the doctrine of the resurrection uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you'll turn there in the word of God, we're going to be looking at the end of the chapter, verses 50 to 58. Paul closes this grand, marvelous, magnificent, gigantuan chapter on the historicity of the resurrection with these great and magnificent words describing for us what resurrection day will look like, particularly as what it will look like for the believer because Christ bodily, physically was raised, right? AD 33, April of that year in Jerusalem out of a sepulcher, he came forth. He was the first fruits, right? He was the first fruits of the one harvest that's coming upon and for the church on the last day of history. And Paul here describes for us what that day is going to be like for those who are in Christ Jesus by faith, by saving union in him. So let's give attention now to the reading of God's holy word. It's the most important thing you do all week is what we're doing right now. This is the word of God. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, that is the earthly body, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, something that was now was hidden but now revealed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, 
and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable earthly body must put on the imperishable heavenly body, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable or decaying puts on the imperishable or undecaying, and the mortal or dying puts on undying, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in Isaiah 25, verse 8. Death is swallowed up in the victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And Hosea 13, 14. The death, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, that is, firmly fixed, immovable or unshakable, always abounding or excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, your work, your ministry is not in vain. It is not worthless. Thus far the reading of the Holy Word of the living God. May he give it his eternal blessing. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you, the God-man, who now ever reigns in heaven with the earth as your footstool, where you have been given an eternal priesthood that we have sung of from Psalm 110, a priesthood that can never perish, spoil, or fade, never die. For you ever live now by virtue of your resurrection as the last Adam, for your new humanity created in your very self, from your very side we flowed, we came, birthed by the work of Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that we might call your Father our Father, that we might have your Spirit as the great deposit for the great inheritance that yet remains for the children of God. And Father, we long and we yearn and we ache and we groan inwardly with the Spirit and with all of creation for the full revelation of the sons of God and our full adoption bodily on the last day at the great resurrection day when those dead in Christ who now are asleep will be raised and we who remain alive shall be changed in a moment when we'll put off death and put on immortality and have a body like yours. May we be found faithful until that day and may this great doctrine, this great truth shape and be the operating paradigm and software in our lives and shape every affection of our heart. We pray and we would ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christians, as Christians, we talk a lot about eternal life, but what exactly does that mean when we say eternal life? How will we spend eternity? Where will we spend eternity? What exactly will happen to us as those in Christ when Christ returns to judge the world and raise the dead on the last day of human history when the curtain will close and the play will be over. 
What will our resurrection bodies look like? I often think about that. Will I have a lot of hair like Absalom? Not Absalom's heart, David's heart, but hopefully Absalom's hair. Will we have bodies that will be perfectly fit like they are typically at 25? They say after 25 it begins to go downhill. We don't know. We can speculate somewhat, but we need to stay within the confines of Scripture. And Paul here in this chapter has laid out for us what these bodies will be like in many ways, that we'll take on the flesh of immortality, a new body, a glorified body. There'll be continuity with the bodies that we now have, and there'll also discontinuity between the bodies that we will have. Earlier here in chapter 15, Paul stated that the believer's body will be raised imperishable, raised in power like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came out of that tomb on that third day, that first Easter morning. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3. Jesus, on that last day, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And here in verse 49 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, He's just said, just as we have been born the image of the of man of dust, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that is Christ, the, the last Adam. Well, this naturally raises the question, what about those Christians who's, who are alive when Jesus returns? Will their bodies be changed as well? Does this future hope of a physical, bodily, corporeal resurrection from the dead Does it have any implications for our lives? Does it shape the way that we do life in this period of the already not yet as we anticipate and we wait in this period of waiting for these new bodies? What implications does this doctrine have for us? How should we then shall we live, right, is the question. Well, Paul answers some of these questions here in chapter 15, 50 through 58. This morning, let's look at this text under these three headings. The mystery of the believer's resurrection. The mystery of the believer's resurrection. Secondly, the victory of the believer's resurrection. And then lastly, the summons of the believer's resurrection. So the mystery, the victory, and the summons. So first, the mystery. The mystery of the believer's resurrection in verses 50 to 53. In verses 42 to 49, Paul has made his case that for believers to live in the new heavens and new earth, we need bodies like the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in verse 50, he says and repeats himself somewhat, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, flesh and blood here is an idiom for the natural earthly body that we currently inhabit, which he says cannot inherit the kingdom of God because they're subject to death and to decay. We all know this. We wake up. Those of us over 50 know this very well, very acutely. With each decade, we know it even more so, right? Existentially, we know that these bodies are wasting away, right? We feel it existentially. And not only existentially, psychologically, we feel it physically. Our bodies are wasting away. But Paul goes on in verse 51 and tells us. He tells us about a mystery. Right? Now this word mystery, don't think Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie, but rather something that was hidden, 
but now has been revealed by the apostle through the Spirit to the church. Notice what it is. What is this mystery? In verses 51b to 52, he, he tells us this mystery of a series of events that it will occur when Christ returns. Notice what he says there. We shall not all sleep. Now this is a metaphor describing the believer's death. He's told us that in verse 6 of chapter 15. But notice what he says. But we shall all, that is those who have died in Christ and those who are currently living in Christ when he returns, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We shall be transformed. Saints, not everyone will die before Christ returns. Many will be alive at his return. And on that day, Paul says that those who have died in Christ will be raised. They'll be given new spiritual bodies equipped for the kingdom of God. Now, let me say this as well, because I think it's very important that we understand this. When the word of God uses the metaphor, the adjective, spiritual body, now don't understand that as being immaterial, not corporeal. No, it's a corporeal, it's a physical body, but it's spiritual in that it's fit for heaven. See, the bodies you currently have are not fit for heaven. You must be given a glorified body. And one day you will lay down the earthly body, the perishable body, the decaying body, the dying body that you currently have, and you will be clothed with immortality, with a non-decaying, non-dying body, a body like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, those who are alive on that day will be changed. These Christians will not have to pass through the gate of death to obtain a glorified spiritual bodies like those who will be raised from the dead. Now, it's a magnificent, awesome thought to think that everyone who's ever lived in all of history, their bodies will be reconstituted, reconstructed. Now, you ask me, how can that be? I don't know. I know there are physicists who have speculated this. The same reason I believe this is the same reason I believe in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, ex nihilo. Well, surely he can recreate that which he created the first time, can he not? But notice how Paul describes how and when this change will take place, when those who are dead in Christ will be raised, and we who remain also will be changed, and both they and we together will be changed and be made and have a body like the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice first what he says here. Believers living when Christ returns will have their bodies changed in a moment. Now this word in a moment is the word from which we get the word Adam. What Paul is saying here, it's going to be fast. It's going to be quick. It's going to be in a a moment. In an instant, you're going to be clothed with immortality. This will happen in a twinkling of an eye. Again, in the flash of an eye, right? In the flash of a twinkling of an eye. You see, saints, unlike sanctification, right? Unlike our progressive growth in sanctification, it's very arduous and very painful, full of cross-bearing, putting off and putting on, putting off sin and putting on righteousness, right? Setting our hearts and minds in heavenly places where Christ is now seated. 
that work of being made more and more progressively like the Lord Jesus Christ, that's very arduous and it's very long. It's not the same in all of us. It's, it's varied. Unlike justification, we're all justified in union with Jesus Christ and given his righteousness, imputed to us, credited to us by faith alone. Sanctification is not alike in all Christians. Some Christians do progress further in their sanctification than other Christians. But that sanctification, again, is never the basis upon which we come into God's presence. The basis upon which we come into God's presence is the clothing we have in Jesus Christ, that righteousness imputed to us and credited to us that we have by faith alone. All that's to say is that this progressive growth, this sanctification, this mortification, this vivification is long, it's arduous. It happens over the lifetime of a Christian. Glorification will not happen that way. Glorification will be instantaneous, like an atom, a twinkling of an eye. In a moment, you'll be changed. But when? When will this happen? Notice what Paul says. He, he tells us, he gives us some, some, some chronology. He says, when the last trumpet sounds, the trumpet will signal the beginning of the end. In the Old Testament, trumpet blasts would often mark celebratory occasions. The trumpets would be blown when there was a great victory in the land. The trumpet would be blown on the Day of Atonement when propitiation was made for the people when their sins would be covered. There'd be a trumpet that would be blown. Your sins are forgiven. This little lamb foreshadows the great lamb that will come, even our Lord Jesus Christ. On that day, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 25, 9. But it also signified victory. The trumpets were blown at the victory of Jericho in Joshua 6. When the walls fell, the, the trumpets were blown. In the book of Revelation, John is given the vision of seven trumpets. And when the seventh trumpet is blown, Christ will return for the consummation of the ages and usher in the kingdom of God in all of its glory. It will be no longer hidden and concealed like seed growing in a field with weeds. No, it will no longer be under the cloak of humiliation. That cloak will be put off and glory will be put on and every eye will see him and those in Christ will be changed in an instant. Revelations eleven fifteen says this about this seventh trumpet. Then the angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. You see, this is going to happen. The blowing of the last trumpet when Christ returns. Well, why the change in our bodies, though? Notice what he says in 53. For this perishable body, right, this earthly body, this, this present body that we now have, this body that we wake up every day, your knee is sore, takes a little more effort to get out of the bed, this present body will be changed. It must put on the imperishable, that is the future body, the heavenly body, and this mortal body must put on immortality. On that day, beloved, you will take off the grave clothes of this body and put on a body like that of our elder brother, our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's gone before us. The forerunner, the archegos. Remember last week we talked about that? The pioneer, the captain of our salvation who's gone before us. We're going to put on a body like his body. We're going to be changed in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, when the trumpet sounds. 
The dead in Christ will rise imperishable, never to sin or die again. Now, beloved, for those of us in Christ who have this great hope, right, if we have this great hope and we believe this great hope, we're banking it all on this great hope. We're all chips in. I met with my friend last couple of weeks ago with Pastor Molson, uh, Leonard Bailey, a teaching elder in the PCA, whose daughter was tragically killed back in uh, September of last year. And literally, as we sat there, I said, Leonard, how are you doing? How are you coping? He said, Dennis, I'm all in with Jesus. I'm all in. Right? I'm not advocating poker, but that's the picture, right? It's just all the chips on the table. I'm all in on the resurrection of the God-man. It was a powerful moment. Are you all in this morning? Are you all in? As God searches your heart right now, are you all in? He knows. Even when you don't know, he knows your heart. He's the reader of the hearts of men, the great surgeon of the hearts of men. For those of us in Christ... This great hope shapes everything about us. From the first opening of our eyes, you're laying there in the morning, maybe you're getting up because the light is changing, right? The morning sun is rising, right? And you start to awaken. First thought, my Savior. This day he's given me a new day to worship him, to walk in the light of Easter morning of the resurrection. One day, I'm going to be changed. In an instant, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And my life now, as I live between the already not yet of the, of the great redemption he's wrought in his person and work, right? Now, having this great deposit of the Holy Spirit living in, with, in within me, yet, and yet knowing that those things that I want to do, I don't do. Those things that I don't want to do, I do, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. Right? Right? We have this hope. We persevere in this hope. It's not a hope that's built on a wish. Well, I, you know, I just hope, I'm just going to hope it's true. No, it, it's real. It's, a, it's an anchored hope. It's anchored in the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. That the tomb is empty. That Jesus Christ historically, bodily, corporally, was raised from the dead. It's that event, those facts, historically. Scientifically, the body that went into the grave came out of the grave. It's that body that gives me hope. That body raised from the dead, right? Oh, to be like Jesus, to, to take every thought captive to his precious word, to walk in his footsteps. All because Christ, the first fruits, has been raised. Well, that's the mystery. Let's look at the victory. Look at the victory of the believer's resurrection there in verses 54 through 57. Paul says here in verse 54 that at the resurrection of the dead, notice how he puts it, the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass what is written in Isaiah 25, 8. Death is swallowed up in victory, right? Swallowed up, right? 
On the last day, John tells us about this swallowing up of death, that death itself will die. It has already died in principle, but one day it will die and will be no more. He tells us in Revelations 21.4 about this day. God on that day will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. On that day, there'll be no more weeping. On that day, the Bailey family and the Scruggs family there in Nashville, and those other seven family, eight families that were affected tragically by that murderous act there in Nashville just a few weeks ago, when those Christians were, were literally martyred for their faith because they believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. On that day, those tears will be wiped and those families torn asunder by sin and by death will be restored and reunited. What a great day. What a great visual that is. Is it not? Those loved ones who have gone before you, you'll be restored to them. You'll be with them forever in the new heavens and new earth. Right? You see those videos of those men who go off to war and then they come home, right? They're just so heartwarming, right? They hadn't seen their kids. Maybe many of them hadn't seen their newborn children. They come home. Just the tears begin to flow, right? The joy. Inexpressible. I'm not articulate enough. I don't have words enough. I'm not a poet. I can't, I can't articulate it. But, but I, I sense it. I know it. I, I feel it. I experience it. Even as they're being reunited, and you think that's just a, a small little microcosm of what it's going to be like on that grand day. When your fathers and your mothers and your husbands and your children who have left you tragically in this life will will be restored to you. What a great day. (laughs) You don't want to miss that day. You want to be found in Jesus Christ. You want to be found trusting in this God-man who was raised from the dead for the justification of his people. It's because of this great day, because of this last word, of human history is not death, but resurrection. Paul cries out in the words of Isaiah, 50, Isaiah verse 55. He's taunting. He, he mocks death, as it were. He, he goes to Bliley's. He goes to Woody's. He goes to the, the cemetery. And he says, oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He can do this in faith. Because the God-man has been raised from the dead. Now, presently, we, we know that death still does have a sting. It sure does appear that we don't have this victory when we look at the world and the circumstances around us in this crazy time in which we find ourselves. But such a time as this, God has placed us here. And no one who is living today will escape death if the Lord Jesus tarries. But know this, beloved, though we don't see What will be? By faith we see him, right? We see him who is made a little lower than the angels, who is now crowned with glory and honor. Right? That's by faith we see him. We see Jesus Christ. And one day our eyes of faith will give way to the imperishable eyes at the resurrection when faith will become sight. On that day, Revelation 20, 14 tells us, death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire on that day, on that last day. And before giving his final exhortation in verse 58, notice how Paul further explores this 
this working of the law and sin and death and how it all works together. Notice what he says here, exactly what this sting of death is in verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Now we know that death entered the world through the sin of the first Adam. And the wages of sin is death and the soul that sins will surely die. The day you eat of it, Adam, you and your posterity in this covenant of works that God made with Adam. The day you eat of it, Adam, you will surely die. And die he did spiritually and subsequently physically, separated from God. This is what makes death such a fearful thing to so many, right? I was just reading this week, Peter Thiel, or Thiel, I think is his name, um, Jeff Bezos and a bunch of other billionaires and oligarchs in Soviet, old Soviet Union, Russia, uh, they're, they're working on uh, trying to find a cure to immortality. I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I, I read it this week. This wasn't some quack uh, newspaper writing. This was a respected journalist. They were speculating that within, within, uh, t- by 2030, they're going to have a pill. Right. Yeah. I know we, we laugh because it's, it's foolish. It's foolishness. Right. They're going to have a pill that's going to perpetuate our lives into immortality. And if that doesn't happen, what they'll do is they'll take our brains and upload them onto a database. You think I'm kidding? There are people uh, floating in nit- liquid nitrogen right now in Europe. Thousands of them floating, hoping for the day that their bodies, their souls will be reunited. Well, they'll be reunited. I just don't think they'll be reunited in the way that they had expected. You see, many are fearful of death. The question we might ask is, where does sin get its power to inflict such pain in death, right? Paul tells us here that the power of sin is the law. Now, if that wasn't in the word of God, you would say that, that sounds pretty blasphemous, doesn't it? If we're just being honest, right? If that wasn't in the word of God, you'd say, what? How could you say that the power of sin is the law? But the power of sin does not arise from a, a flaw in the law of God, right? God's moral law. What does Paul say about the moral law principally? It's good, it's holy, and it's righteous, right? But the law, the law simply excites and stirs the sin within us as fallen in Adam. Paul says the law not only reveals sin in Romans 3.20 and in Romans 5.20, but apart from God's Spirit, it actually increases sin. Listen to me as I read from Romans 7.13. Did the law, which is good, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, that is the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let me give you an example. Some of us have two-year-old children. You're going to get home. They're going to be hungry. Mom, I want a cookie. No, sweetie, you can't have a cookie. Not before dinner. No, but I want a cookie. No, you you can't. You see, the commandment comes and it excites it. 
right? Thou shalt not covet. What do you want to do? Covet. Don't walk on the grass. Your 12-year-old little boy, you're like, you're looking around. You want to walk on the grass. See, the law excites it. It excites the sin that is within us in our Adamic nature. That's why we must be changed. That's why we must be born from above to enter the kingdom of God, right? You must be born by the Spirit, of the Spirit, that you might even see the kingdom of God, right? We hear this, right, and we become discouraged. We cry with Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, right? And Paul gives here the same answer that he gives in Romans 7.25 in verse 57. Notice what he says. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that this victory that Jesus has secured for us is not earned by us. It's received by us as a gift that he earned in his life and his death. He earned it. Christ alone, he earned it. And it's given to us who believe. Therefore, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, should any creature in all of creation be more thankful than a hell-bound sinner like you and like me who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? <laughs> who should be more thankful than the Calvinist? Who should be the humblest creature in all of God's creation? Should it not be the Calvinist who boasts of total depravity and unconditional election and limited atonement and irresistible grace and total depravity and perseverance of the saints? Should it not be we who sing the loudest with the most zeal? Right? Should we not be those full of thanksgiving? Well, looking at his mystery, his victory, let's finish it by looking at the summons of the believer's resurrection, verse 58. Notice what he says there. Therefore, right, when you see the word therefore, it's like a rearview mirror in the car. You see what's behind you, what's came before you. Looking back over what he said in the totality, I believe, of chapter 15, notice what he says. Having looked at this grand doctrine of the resurrection, being clothed with immortality, those who are us, of us in Christ, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul concludes by reminding us of the implications of the resurrection, that no matter the circumstances, no matter what the uncertainties are in life that we may face, we must continue in steadfast hope of Christ's resurrection. We must be immovable, never moved, always abounding in this work, not wavering, but persevering in and for the faith once delivered and given to the saints to be contended for. We cannot move. We cannot be like those reeds in the wind that just blow, right? Unstable in all our ways. When people challenge the historicity of the doctrine of the resurrection, bodily, physical, corporeal resurrection, we must deny it. We must rebuke them strongly in the Lord Jesus Christ. When men and women in our culture deny biblical human sexuality, we must stand fast, immovable in the great doctrines of biblical manhood and womanhood who are, that are laid out for us in Genesis 1-3. to 3. 
We must stand fast in the doctrines of grace, even in the face of hostility and opposition. You see, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. We have a voice. We need to use that voice. We must stand in the gap and stand in the wall and be steadfast and immovable and always abounding, excelling in the work of the Lord. For those without hope, right, the unbeliever this morning, the hymn writer tells us, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know, you see. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you, you have no hope. You're without hope, and you, beloved, are to be pitied among all men, not the Christian, but the unbeliever. Even this morning I was reading, I came across a quote from C.S. Lewis that says, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. What are you going to lose? Everything. Everything. All those chips that we just pushed to the middle of the table, outside of Jesus Christ, you lose all the chips. For what does it profit you and me to gain the whole world. All the chips of the Jeff Bezos of the world or the Peter Thiels of the world. What is going to profit you? What are you going to give in exchange for your soul? Don't be a fool. Jesus has come, follow me, that your soul may live. You see, for us as Christians, our labors are never in vain, no matter how dark it may appear in our culture. The light of Easter morning can never be put out. It's in this light and hope that shines brightly down the corridors of human history that beckons us onward and upward in the call of Christ Jesus. You see, we know, Christian, how this is going to end. We know the end of the story, don't we? So much of your life, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you know what's going to happen on the last day. God has given you that. Revelations 21, 3 to 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, on the resurrection day, we will receive the glorious inheritance in Christ. Paul says about this day in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Beloved, it's this. It's on the basis of this Christian hope, not a wish, but our anchored reality, historical reality in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have this great hope. Christian, the degree to which we keep this glorious hope before our eyes will be the degree to which you will be able to navigate through the darkest days of this present evil age. You know how you're going to navigate through the dark days that are yet to come in your life? Holding fast to this hope. Being steadfast and immovable and always abounding in this work, this work of the ministry that God's called you to 
as a living sacrifice in view of God's mercies, presenting yourself on that altar every morning, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the word of God, that you might know the perfect will of God. That's the will of God for you, church. Death is not the end, church. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Today in the Lord Jesus Christ, we confess with Job, right? Job didn't have what you have. Job didn't even have what Abraham had. You know, and that was Bildad who spoke in chapter 18, who was accusing him, right? He had the, uh, the world's calculus for why Job was suffering, right? Job just doesn't have enough faith. Job's done something wrong. He's suffering. Suffering always equates to some type of sin. Job's sin somewhere. We don't know. We're going to find it out. Right? We're going to put him under the microscope. You see, Job is a type of Christ, though, isn't he? Suffering unjustly at the hands of his counselors, Right? But we confess with Job what he said and what he confessed there in chapter 19. Notice what he said. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. (laughs) After my skin is destroyed, I know this, that my flesh, in my flesh, I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And we who have the full revelation, the full light, the revelation of God's final word in Jesus Christ, God's prophet, priest, and king, the culmination, the one who is the telos of all that God foretold and typified, how much more should we, with Job, say, Amen and Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, Amen. May we live in the light of the hope of Easter every day of our lives in this pilgrimage. Be faithful to the very end. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the great hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. An imperishable hope that you've given us that you can neither perish, spoil, or fade that's kept for us even as we are kept for it in heaven. Lord, we thank you that you who are faithful who has begun this great work in us, are faithful to complete it. And Lord, we would ask now you would continue to work to will within us that we might live out our salvation all to the praise and glory of the Lamb. In light of the resurrection, that our lives would be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding and excelling in the work of the Lord. For our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Oh, Father, would you continue to give us faith to believe this very thing. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.